Indiana University's Eskenazi Museum of Art is one of only three museums in the world in possession of a complete set of seminal modern sculptures by Marcel Duchamp. One of the treasures of the museum's collection, the works began as a cheeky gesture. Jenny McComas, the museum's curator of European and American art, and graduate assistant Andrew Wang created an installation to mark the work's centennial. It was 1917, and New York's hippest art promoters were mounting a new kind of exhibition. The idea was that any artist could submit a work of art along with an entry fee, and this work would be shown. There would be no judging, no quality control, so to speak. They weren't bargaining on this French prankster coming along. Duchamp, I guess, decided to test the limits of the jury-free concept. The art world's original enfant terrible, Marcel Duchamp, had just arrived from Paris. When Duchamp stepped off the boat in New York in 1915, he was already a bit of a celebrity. And that was because, curator Jenny McComas explains, a painting by Duchamp had been a lightning rod for the indignation fueled by a blockbuster show of European modernism that hit American shores two years earlier. One critic in the New York Times had decried Duchamp's cubist tour de force nude descending a staircase as, quote, an explosion in a shingle factory. Cubism was a, presented a fundamentally new way of presenting and perceiving the world, and it took some getting used to. So in an artistically conservative country, which is what the United States was at the time, for viewers who had no preparation for what they were going to see, you know, it was a shock. <laughs> but they hadn't seen the half of it. If visitors to the Armory Show in 1913 had gotten their feathers ruffled by Duchamp's oil painting, what exactly would they make of his submission to the Society of Independent Artists annual exhibition four years later? He submitted Fountain, which is a porcelain urinal turned on its back and signed with a pseudonym. He simply signed it Armut, dated it 1917, placed the urinal on its backside, and that was pretty much the extent of his hand in the creation of this work of art. Co-curator Andrew Wang. He was interested in kind of pushing the boundaries. If this society was really saying that any works of art were going to be accepted for this exhibition, then why not put up a urinal? Turns out the all-comers policy had its limits after all. As one of the organizers of the Society of Independent Artists show, Duchamp got to observe the selection committee in action as they evaluated R. Mutt's submission. So no one knew that Duchamp was actually the, the mastermind behind this piece. And of course, as you might expect, the other directors of the society didn't know what to make of this. <laughs> Their immediate reaction, of course, was that this is not a work of art. It clearly was not made by the artist. And, uh, you know, they thought, indeed, it was not only vulgar, but perhaps even immoral. <laughs> so it was decided that although this was a jury-free exhibition, they would have to reject this piece. And they thought they would send it back to um, Mr. R. Mutt of Philadelphia with a, a statement to that effect that, you know, we're sorry, but this is obviously not a work of art, so it cannot be in our show. So the work was not actually exhibited. However, 
The rejection of the piece from the exhibition gave rise to a bit of controversy. Before revealing that he was the author of Fountain, Duchamp decided to write up a defense of poor Mr. Mutt, and this was published in an art journal called The Blind Man. Writing as Marcel Duchamp, he wrote, whether Mr. Mutt, with his own hands, made the fountain or not, has no importance. He chose it. He took an ordinary article of life, placed it so that its useful significance disappeared under the new title and point of view, and created a new thought for that object. So here we have the basis for conceptual art, the rejection of the importance of craftsmanship that had really underpinned Western art for hundreds of years. You know, the idea that it's the artist's choice and intellectual motivations that take precedence above all. He's been cited now as the precursor for conceptual art of the 1960s. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Five decades earlier, after Duchamp's hoax was revealed, it didn't automatically change the rules of the game. The photographer and art dealer Alfred Stieglitz made a picture of Fountain that was circulated among the cognoscenti, who continued to encourage Duchamp as he anointed a series of industrially made items as his ready-mades. And it was in 1916 that he actually coined the term ready-made. This was a term that was in use at, at that time in the United States to designate a factory-produced item to distinguish it from something handmade. This is actually one of my favorite ready-mades. Wang points out a delicate glass ampule in another case in the exhibition. That would have been used for holding certain kinds of uh, liquid medication. Duchamp bought the vial at the drugstore, sealed up the openings, and labeled it. Incised on the side, you could see it says 50 cc's of air de Paris. (laughs) A container of Parisian air. Like the emperor's new clothes, you have to take his word for it. The object's contents were literally immaterial. Its value emerged in his gesture of calling it art. So he wasn't too precious about it. The original broke, and he just asked someone to run down to the local pharmacy and pick up a new one, and then he just melted the edges to create a a brand new one. Along with the glass vial and the urinal, Duchamp designated a snow shovel, a bottle drying rack, a bicycle wheel mounted on a kitchen stool, and eight other commercially produced objects minimally modified as artworks. But like L'Air de Paris, the original ready-mades no longer exist. So in all of the literature, it just says they they were lost. Mm -hmm. Um, There isn't much of a backstory to a lot of them. And I think it makes sense that they were lost. I'm sure they could easily be confused with some, you know, random object that had Maybe a janitor just decided to move or something. You you never know. Since the original objects themselves were not as important as the idea of them, Duchamp made numerous miniature replicas over the years, which he packaged up in these sorts of traveling salesman kits he called boîtes en valise. The ready-mades weren't things that he made himself, but then these were things that he made of things that he didn't make himself, but called his own work. That sounds kind of confusing. Oh, I see. So, for example, he did make a tiny dollhouse-sized urinal fountain yes. out of ceramic or something. Yes. 
Um, although he did not make the original, right. it was made by a factory. Right, okay. right. So really throwing that whole idea of originality and authenticity way up in the air and batting it around. And yes, <laughs> yeah. exactly. The ready-mades are kind of a slap in the face to the art world as an institution. It's constantly questioning why are things the way they are and who's in control of the, these things. In their rejection of traditional artistic values and their embrace of the absurd, Duchamp's ready-mades, created during the First World War, can be seen as participating in a broader artistic response to it. Tradition was based on logic and reason, and what logic and reason got the early 20th century was a lot of war. And after witnessing this, after, after witnessing the the consequences of these traditional values based off of logic and rationality, the artists reacted really and really tried to move away from tradition altogether. Hence the rejection of the values of craftsmanship and originality, the preeminence of the idea behind the art, as portable as one of Duchamp's handy attaché cases that you can fold up and take with you if you're suddenly displaced. But it would be decades before the replicas at the Eskenazi Museum were made. It wasn't until 1964 that this larger-scale authorized replica edition was produced. It was an idea spearheaded by an art dealer in Milan, Arturo Schwartz, who worked with Duchamp. They made eight authorized sets in all. The fact that Duchamp had a renaissance in the 60s may not have been accidental. The ready-made replicas were produced during the era of pop art, when the idea of mass-produced objects had again gained a lot of currency among artists. If we think of Andy Warhol, for example, the idea of replication as well was an important element of pop art. So there's almost a give and take there between Duchamp and the pop artists. So they, they found their godfather. That's right. So, you know, I think Duchamp suddenly became the mentor, almost after the fact, <laughs> to the pop artists. It was in the air. Are you ready? <laughs> the pop artists weren't the only ones paddling in Duchamp's wake. In the installation Fountain at 100, McComas and Wang have arranged the ready-mades next to works by Man Ray, Joseph Cornell, and Louise Nevelson, among others to illustrate Duchamp's legacy. I was first introduced to Duchamp by a professor of contemporary art, and he said we were living in the age of Duchamp. And it took a really long time for me to, to understand what that meant. But um, when you really think about it, it's Duchamp who was kind of the, the precursor to conceptual art and performance and all of these things that we hadn't really seen before in, in such um, provocative types of formats. I haven't found a single artist post-Duchamp um, who really, you know, operates completely out of his sphere of influence. I use Eskenazi Museum of Art is the only museum in the United States with a complete set of all 13 ready-mades reproduced in the 1964 edition. The ready-mades, along with works in their artistic lineage, are on view in the installation Fountain at 100, on view in the first floor gallery of Western art through May 7th, 2023.
2017. This is Cafe Indiana. I'm Yael Cassander.